Hey, what's going on? Pastor Jay here with Portrait Church. Portrait Church exists to give people a renewed picture of Jesus and his church. And in this series, that is our goal. There's many pictures and different caricatures that the world presents that are honestly false images of who Jesus is. And we want to take this series and hear from Jesus himself and what he has to say about who he is. So we hope that this message series leaves you more impressed with Jesus and leaves you with a greater understanding of who he is. If you would like to know more about our church, you can find us online at portrait.church or look us up on social media or find us on Sundays over at the Mitten Building in Redlands. Hope to see you soon. And I hope you enjoyed this message. Well, good morning, you guys. It's good to be here. How do you follow that? I don't know. Jay, you're a gift, man. Um, Seriously, I love Jay so much and Tiffany and your family. And I know you expect me to say it's a privilege and honor to be here, but it really is. Um, I'll never forget a year ago when I met Jay, we went down to Landmark Coffee and we're sitting across the table from each other. And you kind of uh, started sharing with me the vision for Portrait and it was kind of a surreal moment because I felt like somebody was downloading my heart onto a piece of paper. And so from that moment, I was like, I'm in. And I love, I love my church that I get the privilege of serving at, but I remember something telling you that day, something effective. If I was just a Christian in Redlands, I would give my life away a portrait. And I really mean that. So we're just so excited for what God's doing here. We're cheering you on, we're praying, and we are all about the kingdom. You said it really well, man. So um, we're glad to be here today. Yeah. Uh, What I felt with Jay that day is something I would just call alignment. You know, when you're meeting with somebody, you feel that kindred spirit, you feel like you're on the same page, right? That's a powerful thing to feel in a relationship with somebody else. And sometimes in our relationship, something happens that knocks us out of alignment, right? You know what I'm talking about? I think that's definitely true as well in our relationship with God. Like maybe you're here and you're a Christian, you've been following Christ, you've been... Uh, freed from your sin. He's lifted your shame and your guilt. You found a newfound freedom in him. You've been following him. It's been awesome. It's, ex- it's met or exceeded your expectations. But maybe at some point in your life, something happens and you begin to question everything. We're just gonna call it, you have that why God moment, right? You know what I'm talking about? Have you ever been in a relationship with God and at some point felt like God has disappointed you? You guys ever been there? I know I've been there. I don't know if you know who Ted Turner is. He's worth $2.5 million. He started things like CNN and TBS and TNT, owned the Atlanta Braves, people, things like that. And uh, he once though, when he was a teenager, now he's an outspoken atheist, but when he was a teenager in high school, he was a leader in his youth group and he wanted to be a missionary. But at the age of 15, his 12-year-old sister, who was named Mary Jane, was uh, diagnosed with uh, lupus, right? She she contracted lupus, which is a degenerative uh, tissue disease. And he would have to endure all these days in their house where she would just cry out and scream with pain. And he would write about how he would go into that room and he would hold her hand and he would try to comfort her and he would pray for God to heal her and it never came and she passed away. And that ruined Ted's dad's faith. Ted's dad was named Ed and Ed said after that moment, if that's the type of God he is, I want nothing to do with him. 
So Ted's faith was now on the rocks. And then not long after, it's hard to uh, say it, but one morning Ed had breakfast with his wife. He went upstairs and he took his own life. He couldn't endure the loss of his daughter. So Ted then wrote, if that's the type of God he is, I want nothing to do with him, right? C.S. Lewis, you guys maybe know C.S. Lewis. He's a famous author in the 1900s in England. He wrote the Narnia books and things like that. He once, while he was a Christian, watched his wife pass away from cancer. And everyone has like a famous C.S. Lewis quote, but the one that nobody likes to quote is this one. He says, I can't understand why God is always there when things are going well, but to go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face in a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside of the door. And after that silence, you may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever even inhabited? It once seemed so. Why is God so present in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in a time of trouble? He actually grew through this experience in his faith, but that's not the the truth for all of us. But we all come to a place in our life, if you're a Christian, we're not promised an easy life. We all come to a place where we feel like God has disappointed you. So what do you do when that happens? Right, like, what do you do when all your friends are getting married and you're still not married? Like, what do you do when you're wanting to have kids, when all your friends are having kids, but you're not able to have kids? Right, what do you do when all your friends are finding the job of their dreams and they're moving up in that job and you're just trying to make ends meet and you're like, I hate my job. Like, what do you, what do, you do when you're approaching retirement and it's not looking good or you're in your 40s and your husband just walks out on you? Well, we can go on and on and on. There are things that happen in our life that knock us out of alignment with God. And we begin to ask these why God questions. Every genuine Christian, every genuine follower of Jesus at some point asks God why. And that's exactly the question that we have in our story this morning, our famous iconic story. We have two sisters that come to Jesus and they each ask him the same question. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's a, that's a pretty honest question, pretty honest statement. It's basically code for Jesus, do you not care? Like, where were you? Where were you? And I would say when you come to these points in your life, you really have three options. One, you can just throw in the towel on your faith. You could do what Ted Turner did, Right? You can just isolate that question from your faith and say, we're just gonna bury it. I'm not gonna deal with it. But all that's gonna do is create this really plastic, artificial faith that you're gonna walk around with in this world saying, I'm not even gonna look at it anymore. Or you can go deeper into your faith. And I I would say to you that you can go deeper into your faith when you begin to ask all these what if questions that we see in our passage this morning. This story, famously, Jesus declares, I am the resurrection, the life. And we see a man named Lazarus who, go, Lazarus who goes into a tomb and who's raised from the dead. It's a famous story. It's a long story. We're gonna skip across the surface, but there's four scenes. We see Jesus and his disciples, Jesus' interaction with Martha, Jesus and Mary, and Jesus and Lazarus. And as we go through, I want you to grab a hold of your why God question. And I want you to ask these what if questions with me. 
okay? The first one is this, what if, what if Jesus doesn't waste your suffering? What if Jesus doesn't waste your suffering? Look at verse one with me. It says, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, the illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus, who had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him we may die with him. So Jesus is out in this area with his disciples and he's told that his friend Lazarus is sick, okay? And it's very clear from John, he loves this family. Verse two tells you he spent time with this family in their home. Mary has anointed his feet with oil and dried off uh, that oil with her own hair, right? So he spent time with this family. Verse five says he loves Martha. He loves Mary. He loves Lazarus. He finds out that this man whom he loves is ill. So with that in mind, John says in verse six, so, so he waited two days. If you're thinking clearly, you're going, what the heck, right? I mean, if you find out someone that you love is sick and near death even, you hurry, right? You rush over, you want to be there with them, especially if you're a man like Jesus, who John has already depicted as healing a man who was blind. In chapter four and five, he heals a man by a pool, right? We see him heal a centurion's son. So he not only can go there because he loves them, but he can go there and he can do something about it, but he delays, right? He delays. And then in verses 11 through 13, if you look down there, you see that it's now too late. Lazarus has died and Jesus declares him. He says, hey, well, it's time to go to Judea now, right? Because he's fallen asleep. And the disciples have all these questions now. They go, hey, uh, over in that place, people are trying to kill you, right? They're trying to stone you. So if he's just taking a nap, then we don't, we don't need to go. We don't need to do that. And so Jesus plainly tells them, no, he's died. He's died, Right? really crazy thing that's going on here. He's aware of this danger. And so Thomas responds and he says, all right, essentially we're gonna go visit a dead man and we're gonna do so by following a man who has a death sentence. So we might as well go die with him, 
right? So what is going on here? This is kind of a weird interaction with Jesus. Is he just overwhelmed about life? You know, he's really confused about things going on. I mean, that's how I often feel. I do weird things. I do dumb things. And my wife goes, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I don't know why I did that. You know, like just life is too much right now or something like that, right? Is that what's going on with Jesus? He's not like good at time management or something. Well, no, look at his poise. I know this is hard for you to hear, but he is allowing this suffering to happen. He's allowing it to happen. To be clear, he's not creating the suffering. He's allowing it though. I mean, it's really important as you move through the story, like any story that you think through, who's the hero and who's the villain, right? Who's the protagonist? Who's the antagonist? Here, we're gonna easily see, as you could probably bet, Jesus is the hero, okay? But the villain in the story, interestingly, is not another person. It's not a group of people. It's not a nation. It's not a demon. It's not Satan himself. The villain in our story is death. The villain in our story is death. Death has come into this world because of our sin. It's part of the curse that sin has brought into this world. So Lazarus is experiencing the brokenness of this world. He's experiencing the curse of the world, just like Ted's sister, just like C.S. Lewis's wife, just like I will, just like you will. Jesus didn't create that suffering, we did. Right, but he is allowing it, why? Jesus says very clearly the purpose in verse four. What does it say? This illness is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. And then down in verse 15, he punctuates it. And he says, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. If you go to the end of the gospel of John, you see John tell you why he put this story in the book. He says, I've written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. And at the very end of the book, it's my favorite verse in all the Bible. John says, if we were to write down everything that Jesus did and said, the world itself could not contain the amount of books that could be written. Jesus is amazing, he's basically saying. But John's saying, I've put this story in here so that you would see that Jesus is the son of God and that you would believe that he is who he says he is. That's why this story is here. And so Jesus is saying that if he allows this suffering, somehow through it, you will see him and you will know him and his glory in a way that you wouldn't see it if it didn't happen. It doesn't feel like it's what we want, but he's giving you something better. So what if Jesus isn't wasting your suffering? What if he's not wasting it? What if he's gonna do something glorious through it that could never happen if you hadn't gone through it? I mean, he's God, right? He's so wise, he's so beyond us. I mean, I'm, I'm 40 years old, okay? I have four kids, oldest is 14, youngest is seven. I got like 26 years on some of them, okay? And my kids, I've never felt more dumb in my life until I started having kids because they ask me questions all the time. And I'm like, I've never even thought of that. I have no idea. Or even if I do know the answer to the question, I always think, man, if I actually explain this to you right now, like you don't have the worldview or the life experience for it to even make sense. I mean, just this weekend, my littlest girl asked me if she could have some Halloween candy for breakfast. And I said, no. And she said, why? And I said, I don't know. You just can't, you know, like it's just like, you're not supposed to do that. It's a bad start to your day. And then I gave her a donut, you know, or something like that instead. But 
I sit there as a parent, I'm like, I know this is not good. Even if I could articulate like the, the health behind that or something, right? It wouldn't make sense to you. And so I look to her in that moment when she's crying and I just say, just trust me, right? Just trust me. Like, I know this is hard, right? But I'm, I'm doing something good through it, okay? What if Jesus doesn't waste your suffering? But then we move on, verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, "Uh, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you were the Christ, the son of God, who's coming into the world. So he finally arrives. There's a lot of people there who love this family that are grieving with this family. Martha confronts Jesus outside. Mary stays seated in the house and he, she asks the question, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Essentially she's saying it's too late, Jesus. Where were you? But she has this like caveat, but I know that whatever you ask God, he will do for you. So there's this like hint or shadow of faith in the midst of her honest questioning, in the midst of her why God moment. She hasn't thrown in the towel yet. But Jesus gives her an incredible promise, an incredible promise. She says, your brother will rise again. And then Martha, she must be a theological type Jewish woman because she goes, well, we, I know, we believe that as Jewish people that they will rise again on the last day. But Jesus says, no, 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 I'm talking about something deeper than that, something more. Jesus doesn't just say that he will bring resurrection. He doesn't just say that he will be the cause of resurrection, even though both of those things are true. He says something way stronger. I am the resurrection and the life. I, am, I think next week, we're, maybe you guys are gonna be looking at, I'm the vine, you're the branches, or that's coming, I imagine. But it's that idea that we, as Christians, we become united to Jesus. We're grafted into his life. And if he is the resurrection, then I'm not just resurrected someday apart from him, as if there's some magic power outside of Jesus or something like that. No, he says, I am the resurrection. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Never die means that those who have this resurrection life, when you are united to Jesus, it doesn't mean that you won't go into the tomb. It just means that when you go into the tomb, you will triumph over death and that tomb becomes a womb where you are born again with this whole new life. What I find very interesting about this story is in Martha's upsetness, Jesus doesn't say, hey, hey, calm down, just hold on a second. I got this trick up my sleeve right? I'm about to do something really cool. Go get everybody, go get Mary, have them come out. I'm going to raise Lazarus to life. He doesn't do that, does he? Which is interesting because that's what I would do. I would say, hey, don't question me. I'm about to do something really cool. 
Just wait. But he doesn't do that, does he? No, in that moment when the worst case scenario happens, in the face of her question, Jesus simply offers her himself. What if in your suffering, what if in your grief, what if in your why God moment, Jesus actually is enough? What if that's really the one thing that you need? What if he really is enough? In the face of her question, this is his offer. Nothing has changed about her circumstance. He doesn't, he, he doesn't say, I'm about to do something. He says, I am the resurrection. The realities that you hope for are in me. Am I enough? I can't think of this idea and not think of Corey Ten Boom, who's a famous Christian, lived, she was Dutch, and she housed, sheltered, fed, gave money to Jewish people during the Holocaust, and it caused her tremendous suffering. I mean, I don't know what you've gone through in your life, but I would almost bet that her suffering would be more than our total in this room, the things she went through. And she once says, you'll never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Until all the things that we look at in our life are kind of peeled away from us. And we're going, why God this, why God that? And Jesus is still sitting there with you in the moment going, I'm still here. Am I enough? Martha wants her brother back and Jesus says, I'm still here. You might want this thing fill in the blank back, but Jesus is standing in front of you this morning saying, I am the resurrection and the life. What if he really is enough? Next, we move to Mary, third scene. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary saying in private, the teacher is here, he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly, she went to Jesus. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? So Mary comes out to him. She asks the same question. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. There are people from Jerusalem that have come out the two mile journey to weep and mourn with this family as well. The question is, Jesus, you could have done something about this. You love Lazarus. And the people in verse 37 confirm that. They're thinking the same thing. If he could heal a blind man, couldn't he have helped his friend? But then he looks at her. And what's interesting, it's the same question, but it's not the same response. To Martha, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? To Mary, he sees her weeping. He looks around at the whole crowd weeping. And what does he do? He asks where he's laid. He, we're told he's deeply moved. He's greatly troubled. And he goes, where's the tomb? 
And then in potentially one of the most powerful verses in all of the Bible, you are simply told Jesus wept in verse 35. You see that? Just, just, just try to picture it. Jesus sitting there next to Mary in her grief. Do you see him? Just weeping with her. He shares in her grief. He knows what he's about to do and he weeps. There's something powerful that this story is offering us, you guys. Understanding, it's giving us understanding that God hates suffering. He hates it. He hates death. He hates the sorrow that these realities bring. Why? Because he hates sin. Right? Sin is our problem and Jesus is seeing the effects of our sin here. What our sin has brought into this world is not in the heart of God. That's not in his greatest and highest intention. It's not the world that he's bringing us into. It's not the world that he's sitting in us with, right? He's, this is not his original design. He hates it. He hates the suffering that comes because of it. Because when we sinned in the beginning of time, our first parents, what came through that was death, which comes through that sorrow. And here we see him weeping, but you also see him doing something else because it says he was greatly troubled, which is literally the picture of a bull snorting. Has you ever seen a bull snort? Have you seen that? I grew up in Montana, so I've probably seen quite a few of them. Okay, maybe you don't see that here in the Inland Empire. I don't know. But it's a picture of a bull snorting. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's not only weeping, he's snorting. And he simultaneously, though, is weeping while he's doing it. They're near opposite emotions. But this is giving you a picture of your God. What if in that moment where you're having that why God experience, Jesus is right there with you weeping and snorting? What if that's actually your reality? What if the door isn't dead bolted and the lights are turned off like C.S. Lewis said and there's nobody in the house anymore? What if he's come out of the house and he's sitting with you and he's crying and he's snorting? I mean, let's be real and state the obvious. We see it in Mary, we see it in our own lives. Grief is awful, right, isn't it? It's that overwhelming dark cloud that kind of hovers above our heads when you go through it. It's a kind of pain that can feel intense at times. It's a feeling that can bring numbness into our lives, but not a numbness where you feel nothing. It's the kind of numbness where you seemingly feel everything all at the very same time, right? That's grief. That's the kind of grief that we're seeing here in this story, but it's telling us something. It's reminding us something that things aren't the way they were designed to be. That death isn't a part of that original design. It's not the reality life is. And I think you subjectively know this because every single time somebody dies, we don't just go, oh, that's life, right? Everybody dies and we move on. No, we go, this is not okay. There's something wrong with this. Why? Because God has put eternity into your heart. But we all sit there in that grief and we go, well, what's next? What's gonna happen? I'll never forget uh, seeing the clip of Stephen Colbert on his late night show, I don't like watch it regularly or anything, but I saw this clip going around. And it was fascinating. He's interviewing Keanu Reeves 
Keanu Reeves, you know, from like Speed, if you're older like I am, or, you know, The Matrix, or maybe, you know, John Wick or something like that, right? But I don't know Keanu Reeves personally. I, I imagine he's an interesting guy. But in the interview, he seems like this very thoughtful, in his head, deeply reflective person, which is kind of difficult when you're doing an interview and you're trying to have like a comedy show. And so Stephen Colbert, he's really struggling. And he, in an almost genius sort of way, tries to flip the interview and begin to ask Keanu Reeves these very deep questions. You know, like, what is the meaning of life? You know, this kind of stuff. And he looks at Keanu Reeves and the audience picks up on this very quickly. And he goes, Keanu Reeves, what happens when we die? And everybody laughs, you know? And Keanu Reeves doesn't laugh and he kind of pauses and he sits there and he thinks. And almost without skipping a beat, he just says, I know that the ones who love us will miss us. And everyone's just quiet. It's no longer a comedy show. And Stephen Colbert doesn't know what to do, so they just go to like a commercial break, right? But Keanu kind of puts his finger on it. He's like, we know that. We know that the Marys of the world miss the Lazaruses of the world. We know the Ted Turners of the world miss their Mary Jane sister. We know the C.S. Lewis's miss their wife. We know the ones who love us will miss us. We know that death is awful. We know that even Jesus himself weeps and grieves at death and the weightiness of grief is something that no one gets through life without facing it. It seemingly will never go away. This is why as a pastor, I mean, I talk to people all the time in their moments of grief and there is a sobriety to those conversations. I mean, I'll never forget not too long ago sitting with a man who had lost one of his infant children 35 years ago. But you would have thought it happened that day as he was weeping with me. And then I'm starting to weep. Grief doesn't just go away, right? It lingers, doesn't it? But we have hope in this passage because we are told here and elsewhere that grief actually has an expiration date. Just like all the food in your fridge, just like, you know, your car, your house, or your own life, right? All things have an expiration date and so does grief. But the hardest thing is that grief's expiration date is not today and it's not tomorrow and it's not in this life, but it will expire. How? What's the last what if? What if Jesus will put an end to our suffering? What if he will finally put an end to our suffering? Look at verse 38. Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take the stone away. And Martha, the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there'll be an odor for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, uh, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Set him free. Do you, do you know anybody with that kind of power? 
You know anybody with that kind of power? I mean, with that kind of control, with the ability to speak, and a guy who's been dead for four days gets up and walks out. Do you know anybody like that? I mean, don't miss the, the awe of the story, right? We can't miss this. I mean, this, John wants you to know he was like dead, okay? I mean, it, it's brought up many times, you know? Take away the stone, Martha. Lord, by this time there's an odor. He has been dead four days, right? And then you see it again. Jesus said, the man who was dead came out. Like he just keeps, John keeps saying like, yeah, he was dead. Oh, did I tell you he was dead? Yeah, he was dead. He was dead four days, right? Like, oh, it's gonna stink because he's dead, right? Like he just keeps saying it. He was dead. There was not like, you know, just a coma in him or something. You know what I mean? Like he was gone, right? And yet he speaks and Lazarus just gets up. One person said, and I think they're right. If Jesus had not said the name Lazarus, all the dead would have come out of their graves. That's the kind of power he has. He's like, Lazarus, just you, right? Come on out, right? Uh, We don't want to freak everybody out here, okay? Let's just do one person. That's going to be too much to handle as it is, okay? Think about this. Witnesses saw this. Witnesses wrote this down. There's a lot of people here, right? In this account, a guy died, was dead four days. Someone talked to him and he got up. And now this event would be the final straw, This is the event John wants you to know after this that's gonna lead to his death, right? People are starting to panic. What can this man not do? And so you see it in verse 45, people are doing the very thing that was created as the purpose of this suffering. People are starting to believe in a way that they'd never believed before. Who is this man? Who is this man? He not only can save people from death and healing them before they die, he, can, he has vic- victory and power over death itself. The one thing that none of us can escape. Right, remember our why God question. Jesus, if you had been here, that's the human experience. But Jesus says to you, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? So I wanna humbly ask you this morning, do you believe this? If that's the question, I wanna ask it to you, do you believe this? Do you really believe this? Would you stake your life on it? Would it be enough? How can you know? Like, is there a way that you could really know that he is the resurrection and the life? Can you believe that beyond the ones who love us will miss us belief? If someone said, what do you think happens to you when you die? We don't merely say, we know the ones who love us will miss us. We go, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. I know what my reality will be. How do you get there? Well, only if there's someone who's gone through death and come out the other side, could you know? And that's why this story is incomplete, right? See, Lazarus is gonna come out of the grave and he's gonna go back into it again someday. It's a temporary fix. And that's the thing with our suffering. The, The prayers we have, the why God questions we're asking, they're often all temporary fixes. They don't fix our ultimate problems. We go, God, why are you not doing this if you just did this? And if God gave it to you, you would still have that problem again someday, right? So what is this really about? Well, John uses a word here that he uses a lot in the gospels. In verse 47, it says, this man performs many signs. This Lazarus resurrection was a sign. That's a word John uses to talk about Jesus' miracles. But he uses the word sign for a very important reason. Because you know what a sign is, right? 
It's not the destination, it's just telling you where it is. I think about this all the time. You guys ever seen the Grand Canyon? Ever been to the Grand Canyon? Okay, I've seen it. It literally the only place in my life I've literally had my breath taken away. I guess there and my wife, I'll say that, okay? But, you know, and that's true too. But um, I'll just stop talking. But anyways, <laughs> I love my wife um, very much. Uh, so I've been to Grand Canyon, literally saw it, was like, like, whoa, that can't be real kind of thing, okay? Let's say you've never seen the Grand Canyon and you get in your car today with your friends, or your family, whoever it is, and you drive all the way to the Grand Canyon. You pull up to that sign that says, welcome to the Grand Canyon. You get out of the car, you take your picture, you know, and you go and you post it. You're like, guys, made it to the Grand Canyon. It was a little underwhelming, right? Like not that cool, you know? Everyone's gonna say, well, did you go actually see the Grand Canyon? You're like, well, no, I just, I went to the sign. It said, welcome to the Grand Canyon. And I thought I was at the Grand Canyon. I took the picture with me in the sign and then I went home, you know? You'd say, you don't understand life, do you? Like, that's not how this works. That's a sign that's telling you you're almost there, right? But you haven't arrived at the destination. That's exactly what's happening here. This is not enough. This doesn't fix your why God questions. It's not enough to say, wow, he's so powerful. It's not enough, but this is pointing you to the ultimate destination, isn't it? It's pointing you to Jesus who is so unlike us. Oh my gosh, I wanna recoil from suffering. I don't want any of that in my life ever, but Jesus pursued it. He pursued suffering. He was in the glories of heaven and he laid aside his rights as the son of God to take on flesh and to take him all the way to the cross where he would suffer for us in our place. He endured suffering like you and I would never have to. And he ran towards it. He embraced it for the joy that was set before him. We're told that he was the man of sorrows, that he was acquainted with grief. He was afflicted, stricken by God. And he willingly experienced that most uncomfortable grief when he hung on a cross for you, when he snorted at death because of the reality of sin in this world, he went to the cross instead. And he hung there, bridging the gap between you and God. The gap that our sin created, Jesus stands in the gap for us. And he endures that kind of suffering And he then experienced death in all its reality. He too was dead, dead. Like three days in the grave, dead. Like remove the stone, it's gonna smell dead, right? Like you really need to know that he really was dead, kind of dead. But three days later, he got up from death and he came out and he never went back in the grave again. And he's the first one. And now he stands in front of you and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? If you go, I stake my whole life on it, Jesus. I'll follow you even through the valleys of the shadow of death. He goes, all right, well then your tomb will become a womb too. I'm the resurrection and life. Do you believe this? This points to him All our why God moments are meant to point our eyes to Jesus, the one who experienced the greatest lack of comfort so that you could experience his comfort in your why God moments. The one who experienced real death so that you could just trample over it. The one who experienced the weightiest of all griefs 
so that you could know grief has an expiration date. It will end one day. So John is saying, let's just take the worst case possible scenario of your life and let's just throw verse 25 into it, right? How does that change things? Well, this is how it changes it. The end of your Bible says this, I saw a new heaven. This is John writing this. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I heard a loud voice saying, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. And here it is. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making all things new. Do you believe this? Do you believe it? Let's pray. God, we want to take this time to consider your word and Lord, I'm sure there's some people in this room that you're just preparing them for things that are going to happen in their life. Maybe they haven't experienced the why God moment, but this is a message of preparation. God, when the hardships come, I pray that you would remind us that you didn't recoil from suffering, but you ran towards it. Or maybe there's somebody right now in this room, I'm sure many who are in the middle of it. And I pray, God, that you would comfort their hearts in a way that only you can. That that they wouldn't throw in the towel today, but that you would strengthen their faith in you, Lord Jesus. God, we look to you, the one who grieves with us, the one who is enough, the one who doesn't waste our suffering. And we look to you, God, this morning with hope that one day we will not even know these realities anymore. God, I can't even imagine the day when we look back and we go, do you remember that? Yeah, that was hard. God, we thank you so much you're going to walk us every step of the way. Lord Jesus, we look to you. Would you soften our hearts to you this morning as we respond to you in faith now in Jesus' name, amen.